Good morning. We are uh, glad you are here with us today. And uh, to sing together is a, a wonderful and uh, beautiful thing. And uh, now we are to the point in our service where we open God's Word and we will hear uh, from the Lord what He has for us. So if you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis uh, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we will be working today from verses 18 through 23 of that chapter. Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its, in its place, the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pause this point in our service to come to you in this way, corporately. Acknowledging that you alone are God. And we worship you. And asking, Father, that you would be at work even in these next few minutes as your word is opened and discussed. We pray that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our lives, ministering to us. We pray that you would work in our hearts even as we listen, that we would be attentive, that we would not be distracted, that we would be in amazement at your provision that we read about even in this text. So we ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage, I originally had desired to do through the end of this chapter and thought I could knock that out. And as uh, happens occasionally with me, the more I looked at it, the more I had to say. So I cut off a couple of verses. And, and uh, so Lord willing, we will... Uh, uh, discuss, we'll introduce uh, the, uh, the man and the woman and their relationship uh, today and the next week we will come back and finish up the chapter and uh, see some more things that are in here about uh, marriage and about man and woman and things like that, but I uh, decided it would be best to try and break those up into two different talks rather than keep you here until after lunch. So you're welcome for that. When I was at uh, Bible school in Texas, we had a discipleship group, and so this is a group of young men who were meeting together with one of the 
teachers there at the school, and he was a married man of uh, probably 15 years, 10 years. At that time, they'd been married, maybe more. And uh, he would meet with us every week, and we would read the Bible together and pray and memorize verses, and, and he would answer our questions and, and was mentoring us. And I remember one day when he said to us that we were talking about the topic of sanctification and how the Lord works in our hearts and things like that, and he said something along the lines that the best way I could pray for your sanctification is to pray that you would get married. And at the time, I thought, oh, that sounds very wise. And then I got married, and I realized, well, it was very wise. Because when you get married to another person here, you know, as a young man marrying a young woman, or a young woman marrying a young man, and and suddenly you have to face your flesh in a way you didn't before. Because you can kind of overlook your own flesh, right? Your spouse isn't going to overlook your flesh, okay? And so... Uh, sanctification it becomes uh, much more of a, of a topic, uh, moves to the front burner when it comes uh, to marriage. And so today, when we're talking about this passage, we're introduced actually to the first marriage, the first wedding ceremony even. And so we're going to work our way through this passage relatively quickly, but then uh, there is a lot of um, comment I want to make on various aspects. And so First of all, when we look at this passage and think about what's going on here, uh, we ask the question that that every wife has asked, what's wrong with the man? <laughs> right? And so we, uh, we look at um, chapter 2 and verse 15, we're going to see his mission, first of all, kind of have to get a little bit of a context of, of what's going on here. Uh, with the man, we see in 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he was created with a job. And so that gives some um, a, a sanctified perspective on the jobs that we have. Sometimes we think, I have to work this job because of you know, because of sin or something like that. And, and if things were just, you know, right, I wouldn't have to work a job. But the fact is that, that man was created and given a job immediately before sin ever entered the picture. And he had a job, and his job was to work the garden and to keep the garden. And we noticed last week that these are, uh, these are words that are used in connection with worship and service in the temple uh, and in the tabernacle later on. The same kind of language is used. Uh, so we can imagine that he was placed in a garden and he was working the garden. He was tending the garden. He was doing the things that needed to be done in that context. I don't imagine he was pulling weeds. I think that comes later on. But uh, he was at work in the garden and he was protecting the garden. He was keeping it. He was guarding it. He was defending it. So he had a job from the very beginning. He was to... Uh, assist and develop and, and tend what was there, and he was to keep out those influences that shouldn't be there. He was to keep it as well. And so that's his mission that he's been given. That's the mission he's been created with. And then we see, secondly, his need. His need. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now that, that should surprise us. That should shock us. Because if we were just starting to read in Genesis chapter 1 and we were reading on through, we've run across the word good numerous times. In fact, in chapter 1 by itself, God notices, He recognizes, He sees that His creation is good. 
Seven times in that first chapter. Everything is good. He made this and he saw that it was good. And he made that, the, the, the sun and the moon and the stars and, and, and the creatures and the, and the land and the sea. And it was good. So we're used to the word good and we're not used to the phrase not good. So we get to this situation where the man has been created. He's been placed in the garden. He's been given a task to do. And the Lord God said it's not good. The first instance of something being not good. Something is lacking about the man. There's not something wrong with the man. There's not something twisted or anything like that. He's, 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 he's created in, in holiness and in, in righteousness, and he's, he's rightly related to God. There's nothing twisted wrong with him. There's just something lacking. And so he has a need. And that brings us thirdly to his deficiency. He's deficient. He, he's alone, and that's not good. And God says, let us make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. The second half of verse 18 there. So he needs assistance. He needs help. And every, you know, every mother of sons and every wife of a husband knows that men need help, right? And usually a lot of help. Well, this man is no different. He needs help, right? So we might imagine what, what God is talking about here. What, what helper does he need? And so we can think that, well, he's alone, and it's not good for man to be alone. So one way he needs help would be companionship, to have someone like him, to have a helper with him. Someone he could be with, someone he could work with, someone he could relate to, someone he could love and be loved by. So there's a need for companionship there. And we notice by looking at that, that man is social. Man is a social creature. From the very beginning, it wasn't good for man to be alone. He was all by himself and that wasn't, that wasn't a great thing. Man is social. And there's a social capacity to man. And so he has this need, but, but I, I don't know that that's the ultimate need, companionship. Because there, there is no break in the relationship between Adam and God. He has relationship with God. And there's no sin that gets in the way. The barrier is not there that exists after the fall. He, he, he walks with God. He has relationship with him. And so what, what companionship need, what, what friendship, what love need could God not provide? I, I, I don't know. But I think companionship is a real need that he had right there. But I, I don't think that's the ultimate one. But secondly, if we look at the fact that he's been given a job to do, he was placed in the garden with a task, with a job to do. He's to work it and to keep it. So there's a secondary need. And that is a need for a co-laborer, or someone to help with the work. <laughs> He's got stuff to do, and, and he can only be in one place at one time. And so he would need someone, uh, a helper in that sense, to, a helper literally to help him accomplish the tasks that need to be done. Watering the trees over there while you're also, you know, uh, watering the trees over there. I can't be in both places at once. And so maybe uh, he needs a co-laborer, and of course, um, that uh, ends up being the case that, uh, you know, that the two work together to accomplish their task. And so 
there's this essence also of him needing a co-laborer. Um, depending upon the size of the garden, that may have been an essential and an urgent need. We don't, we're not told the parameters of the garden. Was it one acre? Or was it a thousand acres? Or something in between? Maybe he needed a co-laborer. But regardless of exactly what he needs, the question is, how is God going to solve this problem? Because he's not there alone because of a mistake. God created him and placed him there and did so alone. So you can expect that God is going to solve this problem. And how is he going to do that? Well, that brings in animals and Adam's relationship with the animals. And so we read in verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. So the immediate question was, how are we going to get a helper for Adam? He needs someone to help him out with his, uh, in, in whatever ways that he needed. So let's try the animals. And so God uh, brings the animals to him and every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. In essence, these are, you know, this is the list of applicants for the job, you know, of who's going to be uh, the helper. And so you, you can you can picture it in your mind, and the rabbis do the same. You know, I, I have thought about this sometimes, that all preachers, and they get fanciful when they talk about this, but the rabbis did exactly the same thing, that, okay, they imagine this picture, and there's Adam, and uh, he's it's just been observed, he needs a helper, it's not good for him to be alone, and so here comes this parade, you know, the menagerie comes along, and it's, you know, first you've got the, the giraffes, you know, and he, he calls them giraffes. I don't know what language he spoke or what exactly he called them. We don't have that recorded, but he called them something, and on they went. And then the hippos come along, and he chuckles to himself because they look funny, and then he gives them a name, and then he sends them on his way, and on down the line, right? All these animals are brought to him, birds and everything else brought to him, and he names them. These are the potential helpers, and so we see first that they're brought and we see second that they're named. In the second half of verse 19, he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. To see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. So they were all brought before him. And he had the right to give them names. In this culture... The, the right, the authority to give names was, was an act, a position, an acknowledgement of authority. And if we remember back to what the instruction was, that they were to have dominion over all the creatures, this is an act of that dominion. This is Adam exercising his position. So the giraffes are brought. He thinks for a while and comes up with a word. I'm going to call them this. And that's their name. They don't argue with him. They don't quibble. There's no other outside position saying, no, it'd be better to call them a such and such. No, he gets to call them, and that is uh, him demonstrating authority over them. And so he names them. They all parade before him. He gives names to all of them, and to know how long that took. But they're named. But ultimately, we see they're no help. They're no help. Verse 20, but... For Adam, for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So one thing that he observed after all of this task of coming up with words, coming up with names, 
which in, you know, if you think about it, but coming up with names that are not like other names is a very difficult thing. Coming up with new words is a very difficult thing. We tend to take existing words that we're familiar with and warping them. And we'll give that as a name. When we call someone a nickname, it's usually, it's usually a, a twisting of some word or the person's name or taking existing stuff and making it. But here it seems like Adam is coming up with a giraffe. He's coming up, and then the hippopotamus, and he's coming up with these uh, names. But no matter, all of these have been paraded before him. And remember, what we're looking for is not just names for the animals, but what we're looking for is a helper suitable for him. And there's not one. There's not one out of all that pile of animals. So that begs the question, why won't the animals work? I... I uh, remember uh, talking to my brother-in-law who had uh, worked on a poultry farm and they had other animals that were outside and whatnot and they had some wolves in the neighborhood. Yeah, Canada. And they had wolves. And right next to the igloos. They, come on. Sorry. That's really, that's really only funny to my wife, I think. <laughs> I'm not even sure it's funny to her. But what he did to fend off the wolves from the sheep that he had, or I don't remember what animals, maybe some calves, I don't remember what it was, is he got two little donkeys, two little donkeys, and put them out there. Why get two little donkeys to put them out there to fend off wolves? It's because donkeys will do that. Donkeys hate wolves. They hate dogs. They hate coyotes. They hate small things, and they will kill small things. And so if you want to keep your sheep safe, you can either get you know, big old hairy sheepdogs or put out a couple of donkeys out there. And once the donkeys get used to those sheep, they'll kill everything that approaches them. Animals are useful. Right? If you've watched, if you've watched uh, you know, sheepdogs at work, if you've watched a good cow dog, they're helpful. It's amazing. Or, or a, a, a working dog like a seeing, a seeing eye dog or something like that. It's amazing what dogs can do. The things they can alert their owners to, the things they, they're aware of. I've even uh, read reports of uh, training some sorts of animals to be able to smell COVID-19 on you so they can identify it. I've heard the same thing with cancer. It's amazing what animals can do. So why is it that, that these animals who've not been you know, raised in a world corrupted by sin, all these that were paraded before Adam, why were they of no use? Why don't they work as helpers? Well, they were not appropriate helpers for the man most clearly because of what God had commanded back in chapter 1. I can imagine a way, you know, dogs or cows or, or some other kind of animal might be helpful in the garden. Particularly when you think about keeping the garden. Right? You send the dogs around the edges and they can, they can keep it or whatever and, and things like that. But, but there is one uh, commandment given to the man in chapter 1 that makes it so none of these animals will work. Chapter 1 and verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and thus have dominion over all things. The instruction given to mankind is to multiply. Now he's supposed to keep the garden. He's supposed to work the garden. He's got other tasks that he's doing. But this is, this is a big one, and this is an ongoing one. The instruction there for him to be fruitful and multiply. And what this means is, 
I gave two options, two possibilities for why he might need help. I said, first of all, companionship, and second of all, the need for a co-laborer. And I couldn't think of a word that started with C, and I'm sure you'll think of it right now, but he needs help with procreation. He needs a wife so that he can multiply. Those other things are true. He needs companionship. And there's wonderful, glorious companionship in marriage. There's, there's really nothing like it. And, and, and uh, the husband and wife team working together, and, and there's, they can accomplish great things. I remember when I was going to grad school and I was, I was working basically full-time and I was going to school more than full-time and I was, I was never home. And I, my wife kept things running. She, she was my helper. And we survived because of God's grace in my wife. And so there is great beauty and, and a whole lot to be accomplished from this co-worker, this helper that we have. But there's one thing that is uh, for which she is absolutely and utterly indispensable. Without, without her, this first commandment can't even be kept. And that's for multiplying. And so you see a very basic logical connection that she is utterly essential. She's, she's vital in these other ways. But without her, there cannot be a fulfillment of chapter 1 and verse 28. That was God's command. He simply cannot do it on his own. So you see here God providing what is needed. Providing everything that is needed for man to be able to function as he ought. For him to be able to obey God in the commands, the instructions, and the life that God has given him to do. And so these animals are brought along and they're all wonderful. And none of them have diseases, and none of them are, are stunted or, or, or have any birth defect. They're all beautiful, and they're all wonderful, and none of them will work. They're not like Him. And so, they are of no use. Well, thirdly, what about the woman? What about the woman? We see, first of all, her creation. Chapter uh, 2 and verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So first of all, he puts Adam to sleep. I mean, that works for anesthetic purposes. But I think there may be other reasons why he was put to sleep. So it would remain a mystery to him as well. And wives still remain mysteries to their husbands even now. Sometimes we don't understand where they're coming from. And I think that may have been the case with him. But he's put to sleep. And while he's asleep, the Lord takes from his side and fashions the woman. So, so we, have, we have a big distinction here between man and woman in, in this instance, don't we? The man was, was made of dirt, of dust. And then life was breathed into him. The woman is made from the body of the man. So there's, there's something of a distinction there. She's not formed from the dust like he is. She's made from a part of him. There's a closer connection. More on that later. So first of all, we see her presentation. And then secondly, we see her, excuse me, her first was her creation. Secondly was her presentation, which is really the first wedding ceremony. The second half of 22. And God brought her to the man paraded her down, brought her to the man. Which, of course, is what we're doing in a wedding ceremony. 
And you've got the father who presents the bride, walks her down the aisle, presents the bride to the groom. It's, it's patterned after what went on here. That it was God himself who had fashioned her, and God himself brings her and presents her to the man. What a beautiful thing. What, a, what an acknowledgement. What a, what a vindication of marriage. That the way we do it is not just because, oh, that's cute and it's old-fashioned. It's patterned after God's presentation of the woman to the man. To meet his need. To, to bless him. To, to provide for the first couple such that they together could have dominion over all of the earth. And so we are commemorating that when we uh, do a wedding ceremony the way we do it. And in contrast to all the animals that were presented to him, you know, they were paraded by and, and, and it's a, a long line and all that stuff. And he gave them names and he was, I'm sure, very patient and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but there wasn't really the warm reception that he gets, uh, that she gets in uh, this passage here. So we see, thirdly, her effect. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, so having seen her, the Lord brings her to him and he gets to see her. And then the man said, verse 23, this at last... There's an emphasis on at last. I've been naming animals all day. I've seen every option under the sun, and I'm tired of it. At last. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's rejoicing. And did you notice, I've, in my presentation of him naming the animals, I've said words as if Adam were speaking those words, and I'm sure he did, but they're not recorded in our text. The first recorded words in our text from Adam is him talking about her. And, by the way, he's not just talking. It's not just a monologue. It's not just, you know, what's going on inside of his mind. He sings. This is poetry. He sings over her at last. My wife. She is bone of my bones. She's, she's from me. She's like me. She's not like all these four-footed critters or, or even these other two-footed you know, critters, apes or whatever walking by or, 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 or any of that stuff. She's like me. Bone of my bones. Just like me, flesh of my flesh, actually taken out of my side. He was asleep for that part, but he probably woke up and thought, oh, that's weird, that felt different a few minutes ago. You know, or he could see the scar, I, I don't know. But he was aware of it, and she was taken from his side, and he's rejoicing. She is just like him, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But she's different. She should be called woman because she was taken from the man. There's a similarity. There's, a, there's an, an identity between the two. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We go together. But she's not exactly the same as me. She comes from me. We are separate from one another. She's like him, but she's different. And so we have here the first recorded words of Adam and there. They're about the woman. Singing, not just talking, not just making a comment or, 
or he's, he's writing poetry. It takes a woman to make a man write poetry. My, my poor wife, I don't think I've ever written poetry for her. That's because of me. But he sings when he sees her. He, he is enraptured with, with the fulfillment. You might wonder, why didn't God just do this earlier? You know, when we read chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, and we saw that you know, God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. It's like that, right? Male and female he created them. Pow, there they are. Finished product. Why not just run with that? And they're both there. But when we go into chapter 2 and we begin to see what man is like and what his needs are, what his, what his role is, what his job is, what his makeup is, and then we see God saying, you know, that's not good for you to be alone. We're not finished yet. And then to, to see all of these animals paraded by, making the distinction to us, there is a, a difference between man and the animals. They were similar and, and we're living creatures and, and all of that kind of stuff. But there is, an, there is an essential difference between us and them. And it, it creates in us, it, it raises in us that, that sense of, of need to be fulfilled. That need must be met. How is God going to meet that? Well, He puts the man to sleep and He takes from His side and He he fashions the woman, and there she is, meeting his need. And so what was simply told in a verse back in chapter 1 is now painted out for us in a drama that makes us see that God here is placing great value on man and woman together and their function together. More than just he created the male and female, this is, this is helping us to understand and to value why that matters. So we come to have a greater appreciation of marriage. We come to have a greater appreciation of man and woman and our relationship and similarity with one another, and yet distinction, man from woman, but utter distinction from the rest of the created order. And so we have Adam singing this song, and and we will close our verses that we're looking at today with that passage, and we'll pick up. Uh, next week and talk about the, the last couple of verses there and, and some of the other uh, aspects that are very significant for marriage and for our day and for family and for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But I want to make a couple of observations in closing our time today. A couple of doctrinal points here. First of all, man is a social creature and needs other humans. We've got to recognize that. We've got to recognize that. Secondly, the woman is fashioned from a part of his side. She's she's his companion. Fashioned from his side, but then independent of him. But very closely, organically, uh, genetically connected. She's his companion. He recognizes in her something very, very familiar and yet intriguingly different. And so, he's so intrigued by her. He's so fascinated by her. He's so in awe of what God has done. Having taken something from his side, you would imagine that this companion would be someone just like him, but it's not. It's the woman. And so he sings over her.
Thirdly, she is formed from his body. The relationship is much closer this way. I mean, God already, God already made the man from the dust. Why couldn't he just make the woman from the dust? He's already got the blueprint. He's already got the experience, as if God needed either one of those. He's done it before, but does it strike you that he, that he creates the two differently? And if he had created the two that way, if, 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 he had, if he had made the man from the dust and breathed life into him so that he became a living creature and did the same exact for her, fashioning from the dust and then making her into a living creature, they would be two parallel beings. They'd be two parallel types. They might look similar to one another, but they would be different. They would be on different tracks. And the way it's described here, the way God does it, and the way the author tells us about it, makes it so that there is a greater unity between man and woman than simply as if they had been independently created. You've got the independent creation of the man from the dust and life breathed into him. But then God does something different with the woman. And he takes from the side of the man, and from that, he forms her. So there's a a greater connection between man and woman than just two people, independent of of one another, who happen to come together. There's a joining together. There's a a, a becoming one. And we're going to get into that next week. In uh, In our wedding, we had a big discussion, and this... I didn't have a whole lot of opinions about uh, how most things were to happen in the wedding. I was 21, and what did I know? I didn't have. But I had an opinion about the unity candle, right? That was the one thing I had an opinion about, and that was I wanted the two independent candles brought together and lighting the new one. I wanted the independent ones to be blown out. Why? Because I didn't want my wife to be a person or because I didn't want No, because I wanted to, to, to acknowledge this closer unity that exists just like God forming the man from the dust and then forming the woman from the body of the man. So the two are closely united. There's a a, a beautiful corresponding relationship between the two, and that relationship would not exist in the same way if God had made them separately in those same ways. Fourthly, doctrinally, the woman is his helper, the one given to him to help him complete his mission. You have a You have a purpose behind marriage. It makes it so man is able to do what man was supposed to do and couldn't without her. There's a completion. There's a a formation of a unity here that makes it so the man can complete his mission. And lastly, we need to notice that having children is a huge part of the mission that God has given us in marriage. And I'll talk more about this um, probably next week, but I ran across a website that uh, ultimately made me uh, want to cry and maybe want to hit something. It's called stophavingkids.org. And that is evil. That is evil. The marriage unity that we have right here, husband and wife coming together, there's companionship there. And, and that's, a, that's a very real and a huge part of our marriages. It's, it's fulfilling, it's life-giving, it's supporting, it gives us endurance, it's a blessing. Likewise, when we get married, we, we form a team and, and the two can work together. 
And, and we see that we're able to do things like one person be insane and go to grad school and not sleep and just work all the time and his wife run the show and, and keep everybody alive for a couple of years. We're a team and we can accomplish things together. But this first commandment in the Bible is about having children. And for us to think that marriage exists for those other two reasons and not this third, which is actually the primary, is to deny what God has given us in the Scripture as His design for our marriage. And so, I saw that website. It was, it was very saddening. Very saddening. Stop having kids. So, the intention here is for them to have a family. For them to multiply and fill the earth. And that's fulfilled, that's made possible by this relationship here. That's the final doctrinal point. I have a couple of points of application for our lives here. We need to view marriage like God views marriage. Marriage is a holy gift that God has given to bless man and help him fulfill the mission God has given him. It is only between one man and one woman. And if we don't love marriage the way God has designed marriage, the problem is with us. The problem is not with marriage, the traditional aspects of it. The problem is much more in here. And so we need to view marriage like God views marriage. It's a wonderful and blessed thing. And it's not just for our satisfaction. It's not just for our pleasure. God has a greater design for it. It's, it's the fulfilling and the completion. So we need to love marriage that way. Does that mean everybody must get married? No. No, I don't mean that at all. But it's the normal, it's the normal path. Uh, it's the normal path for the Christian to get married. To marry uh, another Christian. And to raise a Christian family. And to participate in the Christian church. And to be Christians in your community. It's a normal part of what we pursue. And we need to love marriage the way God does. Secondly, a question. Do you value the uniqueness of maleness and femaleness? The uniqueness of maleness and femaleness. There is a, a trend in our society to, to basically redefine both of those things. And it happens in sports and you read about it in the news and you see all, all kind of other uh, times where they're trying to make it so that men be more like women and women be more like men. Folks, we ruin both when we do that. A man is made to be a man. And a woman can't play that role in the same way. We have our strengths and weaknesses and our makeup. Those things make us men. And so we live like men. We act like men. And we look like men. And likewise, a woman has a unique gifting, unique blessing, unique capacity to serve God and her family in a way that no man ever could. She has that uniquely. And when a man plays like he can do that, it, it never goes well. There's, a, there's a, a sense in our day, there's a, a notion in our day that the, the best a, a man can be is a woman and the best a woman can be is a man. And this description from Genesis 1 and 2 describing the very beginnings of where we came from would argue against that strongly. 
That is not a Christian position. And so we need to recognize the the uniqueness, the beautiful and wonderful complementary uniqueness of maleness and femaleness. The word word here when it says a helper fit for him or suitable for him, it's it's corresponding. One that goes together with him so that together they make make like a whole unit. They, they, They make something new that's wonderful and fits together. It requires the maleness of the male and the femaleness of the female. To, to, to form this one flesh. And it's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And it's God's design. And so do we, do we value that? Or do sometimes we chafe a little bit because, because we, we, uh, we think in our culture that it would be better if, if men were a little, bit, a little bit less manly and a little bit less toxic and if, and if women were a little bit more into the male's sphere, and wh- why blend those things? God has created beauty. He has created it wonderful. And he's created it in such a way that when Adam sees the woman, he loses his mind. And he sings about her. Because she's so much like him, and yet she is so different from him. And there... You can see how this plays out in some particular ways. The, the, the order of creation, particularly from chapter 2 here, focuses on the fact that, that man's basic disposition is toward God and his work. That's his basic disposition. That, that's how he's wired. Those are the tasks that he's been given. And that's how men typically are. Face towards God, face towards work. The, the woman is different. Her disposition is different. She faces primarily towards God and then to her husband, to her family. She's wired that way. She wants to do that. And she's been called to do that in Scripture. That there, there's, a, there's a difference in the way men and women are wired. There's a difference in, the, in what men and women are called to do. The way they're called to, to function in their relationship. They are different from one another. They often work side by side, but their dispositions are different. Someone has once said, and I, I, I thought it was a, a catchy and thought-provoking statement, he said, the man is called to the mission. And I think you can see that. The, this chapter is talking about Adam being formed, fashioned in a particular way, and he's placed in the garden. He's given a job to do. He's given a mission. The man is called to the mission. But he's deficient. He needs something. He can't quite get the mission done. He needs help. And so a helper is created. And that woman is called to the man. The man is called to the mission. And the woman is called to the man. You see, that's how that works together. We might struggle with how we are going to put that into play in, in our lives and things like that. And, and that's, a, that's an important conversation. But we need to understand that basic difference between man and woman. In a marriage relationship, you've got that different disposition. And so the man is primarily facing towards God, and then he faces out towards his work. And his wife is, is concerned about God, face towards God, and face towards her family. I, I have the image uh, in my mind here of, you know, the man who goes out to work each day. He, he, he leaves, and he, like, puts on his armor. He goes out into, to face the world. 
He's defending the garden. He's fighting off whatever's trying to encroach into the garden. He goes out into the world, right? And he comes back at the end of the day and his armor is like dented and like he's got some blood on it from the thing he killed, maybe even a little bit of his own, right? He's, he, and he comes back in, right? But that's his job. Is he bummed that his armor is a little dented, a little bloody? No, like chicks dig scars, right? So he's like showing his wife, like, did you see, you should have seen that one, right? So it's different. So he dusts himself off and, and his wife, you know, cleans up the armor or whatever she does and maybe maybe not. But, but then the next day he puts it on and he happily goes back out to do battle again. That's what he does. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take on the world. And his wife's concern for him is far greater than his concern for her. Now, we should be concerned for our wives. I'm concerned for my wife. But there's a difference in our basic wiring, and there's a difference to the basic way we've been called. The man puts on the armor and goes out and gets dented up, and it doesn't deflate him, and it doesn't depress him that he, that he, that he took one on the chin today. He comes home, and he sees his wife and his family and goes back out the next day and does it again because his basic disposition is towards God and his task. The woman's disposition is towards God and caring for her husband in the ways that he needs. This introduction to marriage, and it's a very basic introduction, and we'll hopefully carry, carry it on next week, but introduces the idea in the Bible of a marriage. And we understand a man and a woman here, even in the second chapter, introduced in the first chapter, these two that are put together, marriage, and, and cultures all have marriage, and, and marriages look a little bit different, and they look a little bit similar in all these different cultures. But we see in the Bible that there is a theme, particularly in Genesis there's a theme. People looking for a wife, people looking to have children, people looking to <clears throat> fulfill these tasks. But that, that goes beyond just Genesis. That goes on for the rest of the Old Testament. And you, you have an understanding even in Jewish culture, in Jewish culture of this day, that there's a formation of the nature of marriage because of this passage. The expectations of what marriage will be like, what a husband will be like, what a wife will be like, what their family will be like, and what they are to do, and how they are to raise their children, and how they're to interact in the community. A husband and wife relationship becomes like a paradigm, becomes, becomes something that's discussed and developed and, and warped in different times in history as we see sin enter the picture. But it goes much beyond that because we get into the New Testament and we read Paul reflecting on this notion of husbands and wives. And he says in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives. Okay, we expect that instruction. But then he says, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he's saying, remember that picture of husband and wife? Remember that picture of marriage? That's a picture of Christ in the church. So husband, love your wives. Why, husbands, love your wives? Because Christ loved the church. The fulfillment of that, the, the completion of that is in Jesus himself and what he did for the church, that he loved her and he gave himself for her to redeem her. And so this, this image of, of marriage that we read about back in Genesis chapter 2 is not just telling us what marriage to, should be like and how we should understand uh, you know, gender roles or, or uh, anything about transgenderism or the, or the current movements. And that, that, 
That's not primarily what's going on here, though it's applicable in all of those areas. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, after having talked about this whole picture of, of, of marriage, he says, I'm speaking to you about Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Christ, the, the groom, the one who, who's, whose work was to redeem a sinful people like you and me. Whose work it was to go out and give himself, sacrifice himself, put on the armor and go to battle. And he took bloody wounds for you and for me to redeem us from our sin. Not, not just bloody wounds, not just you know a, a shot on the chin and a, and a scar on the elbow. But he, he went to the cross for you and for me. To, to pay the penalty for my sin and the wrath that I deserve. Because he's a husband redeeming his wife. And so husbands, we love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to redeem her. And so as we wrap up our time here, I don't, I don't want us to go away primarily thinking about marriage, though that's a, that's a huge topic. But I want us to recall that while we are thinking about marriage, while we're thinking about our own marriage, while we're thinking about this picture of marriage in Scripture and we're thinking about what marriage has become in our culture or, or, or what the Bible in general teaches about it, as we're thinking about marriage and relationship, husband and wife, and how we relate together and all of those things, we cannot divorce it from the fact that Paul says all of that, understanding biblically of marriage is a picture to remind you, to point you to Christ and his relationship for the church. That Jesus himself gave up his own life to redeem the church. And here we are, Christian, as those who have received that redemption, have received that saving work of Christ on our behalf that he did for us for the joy set before him to redeem us and make us his own. That's the kind of love that he has for us. When, when Adam saw the woman, he sang. The Bible tells us that the Lord sings over his people as well. The Bible tells us that the, the love that, that God has for us is infinitely greater than any husband has ever had for his wife. And so we read about Jesus Obeying in our place, enduring the suffering of, of being mistreated in this life, living in a sinful world, facing temptations that he didn't deserve and, and, and facing slander that he didn't deserve and hardship against him, opposition that he didn't deserve. And he did so obediently. And ultimately going to the cross in obedience to redeem sinners like you and me. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a, what a blessed and wonderful Redeemer groom we have. And so, as we think about marriage, let's think about the fact that we, uh, as Christians, have Jesus as our redeeming groom. And let's rejoice in that redemption. Let's pray. Father, we have scratched the surface barely of what your word would say about marriage. 
But we've seen the origins. We've seen the origins of, uh, of man, of male, and of woman, of female. The origins of marriage itself. The origins of why we have children. The, the origins of how we are so similar to one another, and yet there are great differences between us. And, and both are vital, and both are, are, are essential in our lives. And, and we've seen all of this from your word. And we, we confess that we live in a day where these things are denied, Almost always, outside the church, they're denied. Sometimes within the church, they're beginning to be denied. But Father, we ask that you would work in our own understanding, in our own thoughts, in our own beliefs about what marriage is and is not, and what man and woman are and are not. Pray that you would minister in our own hearts on that topic. And Father, as we think about the fact that this all, as real and as powerful and as important as it is, points to Jesus, who gave himself for his bride. And Father, I rejoice, and we rejoice as those who get to be the redeemed, those who are the bride of Christ for whom he gave his life, gave himself for us to redeem us to cleanse us, to purify us, and one day will present us entire and spotless without blemish before you. And he will show us off, and he will sing over us like Adam sang over Eve. So, Father, we are humbled that we get to know you in this way because of Jesus. We are humbled that he would do such a thing on our behalf. I pray that you would Send us out in great joy and hope and peace, celebrating that truth of our redemption in Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray with you if you want to pray with them. I want to close us with these words from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you all. And you're dismissed.